Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open House podcast. Today is a real bucket list episode for me. You know, when I started this two years ago in my bedroom, just having started therapy, being like, I need to share this with the world, I actually never thought that I would have the holistic psychologist sat here with me. So as excited as everyone is listening to this, I am as excited to have Dr. Nicole here with us today. She requires no introduction. You all know who she is. But I think the first part of today's episode, we're going to just recap you on really the movement that Dr. Nicole is leading and has been leading. Because sometimes I think we can forget about this movement of holistic psychology and quite how important it is. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to move into all things love, relationships, communication, wiring, conflict, you name it. We're also going to be discussing Dr. Nicole's new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, helping you to break cycles, find peace and heal your relationships. So Nicole, hi, I am so happy to have you here. How are you today? I am so great. I'm honored to be here, Louise. Thanks for having me and thank you all for tuning in. Oh, thank you so much. So yeah, I think before we get into, you know, how to be the love we seek and all things self-love, which I can't wait, I'd love it if you could just remind the audience how holistic psychiatry, this movement, this paradigm shift that you have literally pioneered, how it's different from the more traditional models and maybe why this is the future of mental health, because that is very much what we believe here on this podcast. It's so wild even hearing you describe it as a movement, though. I think that's very much what this is becoming, because even speaking from my own individual experience and professional experience, this is absolutely this information in terms of a more 
holistic approach was nothing that I read about personally and definitely nothing that I learned about in my very traditional training program. So in terms of the traditional kind of mindset, the way we think about ourselves, our emotional suffering or psychological suffering, being trained in clinical psychology, it really emphasized the kind of top-down approach or the importance of the brain, the mind. A lot of the, at least in the West, the traditional systems focus on or emphasize a CBT, this idea of change the way you're thinking, change the way you feel, and ultimately change the way you behave. So very much myself believing that to be the conceptual framework, yet not actually seeing any progress. I'd been on both sides of the couch, if you will. As long as I can remember, I struggled with anxiety myself. And several years into having a private practice tasked with helping others navigate their suffering, I continued to come upon a kind of stuckness in everyone that I was working with. No amount of insight people that I had been working with for week after week, month after month, sometimes for the better part of a couple of years, weren't seemingly able to translate that insight into action. I was like, okay, what's going on here? What's going on here with me first and foremost? Why am I continuing to struggle with anxiety? Why am I seeing these dysfunctional cycles? And we'll talk all about those. Though what I came to understand is I was leaving out a whole big part of the human experience, which is the body and the interconnection between the mind and the body. So Holistic really does honor then. Of course, the mind is very powerful, though what many of us are living within are these patterns stored in our nervous system and our body reactivity and our relationship with our emotions. And that's what was causing that stuckness. No amount of insight was going to actually change that. So I do believe it is the future. I do think that incorporating the body and somatic practices and nervous system awareness and nervous system wellness and all things we can dive a bit deeper into I think that is going to be the only way that we give people the possibility to actually create change in their life. And the change can absolutely be transformational. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's that word stuckness that sums everything up perfectly. And we hear time and time again, people saying, oh, from the podcast, I now understand this, or this is my pattern, this is my cycle, but how do I change? And it's that stuckness with the conscious awareness, but they don't know how to go deeper. And I think that that's why this work is just so powerful. And we are so big into neurobiology here at Open House. And I know you have a whole chapter in your book dedicated to this. And when I read it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is what the world needs. So I'd love if we could just start by you sharing like, why people actually can't think their way out of unhealthy relationships or these cycles that they're aware of. Yeah. And I think even kind of acknowledging the question of that I very much get asked a lot too is, well, how do I change? The reality of it is change in and of itself for us humans driven by our nervous system is very difficult. It causes a lot of stress. So no matter what it is that we know to do better, there's even a resistance or a difficulty in employing the new choices or the new actions or breaking the cycles when we go to you know, do the new thing or stop doing the thing that is causing our self-suffering. So when we really think about kind of the neurobiology, what we're talking about is all of the bottom-up processes that are happening that are, again, just to continue to reiterate the importance of our nervous system that are driven by our nervous system. And the reality that we're always scanning our environments and detecting energy and always trying to sense whether or not the current moment is safe for us. And again, the reality of it is anytime we go to move outside of whatever our familiar habits and patterns are, even if we do have insightful awareness that they're creating 
dysfunctional habits or self-sabotaging behaviors or dysfunctional habits in our relationships, anytime we try to make a step into the direction of newness, our nervous system is going to register that as possibly stressful. And if we're not able to, again, within our bodies, cope with differing amounts of stress, emotions and stress register in our bodies. So we cannot just think our way through just be calm or just do this new thing in the moment. It's really about our body's ability to become or to step outside of, again, that range of familiar experience. So it really becomes a holistic or an embodied approach where we do understand our neurobiological wiring, that we do have these habits and patterns. They're not just something that live on the surface. They are something that our body is involved in. Our body will always prefer that which it has known in the past. And will actually, our mind then will collude with it in the sense of we begin to view even our current experience through this lens of similarity to the past. So before we know it, we're seeing similar experiences that we once had. Our body is reacting in this old familiar way, even if we're hovering above and very logically trying to say, calm down or do this new thing. It really is, again, about the embodied practice of teaching both our mind and body how to see new experiences and more so how to experience new experiences. Oh, yeah. It's that topic and concept of us staying close to what's familiar that is still so confusing for so many. They're like, but objectively and rationally, this is really horrible for me. This is really bad. So why do I keep choosing it? Why do I keep choosing people that cheat on me? Why do I keep choosing people that leave? And people get annoyed and they get angry. They're like, you're saying that I did not choose abuse. Like I didn't do this. And I think to really understand this concept of staying close to familiarity, we need to take it back to early childhood. And once people understand that, they can stop that fight with the objective, with the rational, and they can accept it and then compassionately step into healing. And I know you talk about this a lot in the book, but I'd love it if we could just jump into the impact of early childhood experiences and trauma on your mind, on your body, on your relationships. I think another frustrating point, just to speak to this, right? You're, you're telling me that I want this. No, absolutely not. And I think some of us even when offered with the possibility to look to our past as playing a role in our present, especially those of us who had very difficult pasts filled with a lot of abuse, a lot of suffering, maybe a lot of neglect, oftentimes in adulthood is a conscious decision. Well, I don't want to look back there. What point, what good will that do? Though, to dive into this answer a bit more, the reality of it is that's where our wiring began. Those early environments, the safety and the security or their lack thereof, how consistently our needs were met, how emotionally attuned and present our caregivers were, really do impact not only our relationship with ourselves, how we're going to show up and care for our own needs, physical and emotional, though it will impact how we're going to show up in our environments. Because when we're children, not only are we in an open state of, of learning, we're taking in the environment around us, our brain and our nervous system is still developing, we're in a state of pure dependency. We need some version of care to sustain our physical life. So because those social bonds or those relationships are integral to our physical survival, what we'll begin to do, not only will we learn how to care or not care for ourselves based on the care given, we'll actually begin to modify whatever is within our control to try to ensure for the best of our ability that our care continues at whatever degree we're receiving it. So what we begin to do for many of us is we take on these identities 
we first and foremost, I should say, build these deep rooted beliefs that get ingrained in us about who we think we are, what we think our place is in the world. And then that identity gets wrapped around us in a sense and becomes the exact thing then we enact as we continue in the world, caring for ourselves or not. And as we continue then to relate to others and we carry those patterns. Again, the title of that one chapter is the neurobiology of what I call our conditioned selves. These very early learned ways that we've learned to continue those connections to the best of our ability that we then continue into adulthood because quite literally they're wired into us. Oh, yeah. And in your book, you mentioned the concept there of our stories and you write about the ego story and how we have these stories and maybe we're not even consciously aware of them. I'd love to talk through some of the top ego stories that you see in practice, just so people might be like, oh, yeah, like that one's me or that one's me. And hold on a minute. I didn't realize that this was a story. Absolutely. And what the ego is, just so that we're my definition, very simplified, of course, is beautifully like you're sharing it, the story of me, how I come to believe myself to be, the attributes I have, the attributes I don't have, what I believe my place is in my relationships and within the world in general. And I could throw out what I've come to find is the core, quite universal ego story that drives then all the different individual versions of it. That what I've come to realize, no matter who I talk to, no matter how on the external side of things, their world, their life looks to be, how confident they are, right? They have it all together, these relationships. At our core, I have yet to meet a human being who does not believe to some degree that some aspect of them is not worthy. So what I come to find is the number one universal ego story is some version of I'm not worthy and why. So I was trying to explore for myself, why? how can this be so universal? No matter who you are, there's some way that you don't believe yourself to be worthy. And it really does go back to what I was just sharing in terms of that state of dependency. Because while we're still developing our whole neurological biology and we're dependent on these other people, we need others to show up for us. We need others to care for us. Our mind is still developing and maturing. And from birth until around age seven or eight, we're in what is called an egocentric stage of development which simply means everything, our whole world, people's actions and inactions revolve around us. We don't have the maturity like you and I do now and all of us listeners, right, to zoom out and understand all of the different reasons why mom, dad, or whomever the caretaker wasn't available for us in the way that we needed them to be, whether it was physically, whether it was emotionally, whether they were violating us, crossing our boundaries in a more abusive way, whatever the case was, in that early stage of development, the only meaning, because our minds are always seeking to make meaning, to understand the world, to make sense of it, to gain a sense of control around it and predictability, back to that idea of familiarity, all roads will lead back to the inconsistent care that I'm receiving is a result of my lack of worthiness. It must be something I'm doing, I'm not doing, some aspect of what I'm expressing, maybe emotionally, some of us might have heard, right? Don't show certain feelings for whatever reason. Don't be a certain way. Don't let the neighbors see. Continuing to strengthen this idea that someone wasn't present to me, not because of all the other factors that were in reality the case. They weren't present to me because of something inherently unworthy about myself. And then, of course, we have all of these other individualized ego stories that we begin to use as filters the more you tune into 
what it is that your mind, how you're narrating the meaning you're still currently making of events or lack of events in the world around you, begin to pay attention to what it is you're telling yourself on repeat. And I could just share my offshoot of at my core believing I'm unworthy very closely is followed by this idea that I'm a burden. If I have in particular emotional needs growing up in a household that my physical needs were met consistently, though emotionally I didn't have a safe and secure attuned caregiver. My mom was a million miles away, overwhelmed by her own emotions, traumatic things that happened in her life before I even came around. She wasn't able to tend to my emotions. So if I'm in my mind's eye, I will notice the meaning that I'm making when I have partners that aren't showing up for me or friends that aren't available for me or when I have a need and I need to express it, but I'll have this running voice of saying, oh, this is happening or not happening because you're a burden. Oh, don't express that because you'll be a burden and then any version in between. So again, at our core, I think universally, we all believe ourselves to be unworthy for some reason. And then universally, whether it's because I'm a burden, I'm too much, I'm over dramatic, begin to pay attention to how it is that you're making meaning of the world around you, in particular, your relationships, and how are you defining yourself? This is so powerful. And I feel like it aligns with everything that I have seen through this podcast time and time again is that everyone always feels like they are either too much or they are not enough. And ultimately that comes back to exactly the same thing. It's like, I am not worthy because I'm too much. I'm too much for other people to hold, or I'm not worthy because I'm just like not enough. And I want to ask you a slightly nuanced question here, which is that I sometimes have challenges with the word self-love, which is why I think the book you are releasing is so powerful because people just say, oh, just love yourself a bit more. And it's like, no, you can't do that because you weren't taught how to do that. You don't know how to do that. And you don't think you are worthy of doing that. And what I want to ask you is, do you think it's fair to say that one of the reasons that we don't give ourselves self-love, self-compassion, self-respect even, you know, we do the things we know that we shouldn't. We engage in the toxic relationships. We eat fast food too much. We're sedentary when we know we should move. We don't do the meditation. The simple things that we know would help. Do you think that that ties back to this core belief that ultimately we just don't really think that we are worthy? Or why do you think people are neglecting themselves in that capacity? 100%. And you're beautifully, Louise, kind of defining in the sense what a belief is. Because a lot of us think that beliefs are just thought in our mind. And therefore, when we come upon a belief, I'm not worthy, that we want to change. Sometimes very well intentionally, we're offered with affirmations and an affirmation practice. And just to continue with this example, right, we could write I'm worthy on a post-it note, post it all over the house, have a reminder on our phone. And if we're just repeating, I'm worthy, I'm worthy, I'm worthy, that's only going to be half of the journey to becoming worthy. Because a belief is actually not just the thoughts that we think in our mind. Those thoughts are actually grounded in the lived experience of not feeling worthy, locating motions that exist in our bodies, not just in the thoughts in our mind. And it's also grounded in the actions of not having someone initially treat us as the worthy individual that we are in our wholeness, but also us then continuing those cycles of self-betrayal or of self-sabotage or self-neglect, not showing up in care of ourself at all. So to counter and to this idea of self-love, even it's not just the nice things that we do to show our self-care and compassion. It's actually to be in our own presence, which sometimes means 
being in our difficult feelings, allowing ourselves to be physiologically present with really upsetting, overwhelming emotions. And the reality of it is for a lot of us, not only is that an uncomfortable task to even want to, to engage with, we don't actually have the tools to do that. We feel overwhelmed. We get scared, a lot of us, that we're going to get stuck in our darkness or our sadness or our suffering. And then we habitually rely on the same thing we always done, projecting this image, keeping it below the surface, distracting us with our endless to-do list that I know I very much have done for decades of my life or just checking out entirely, which was the byproduct of overstepping all of my boundaries after I was trying so hard to just achieve and fill that hole. I just became completely dissociated or disconnected. So again, we're going to travel down that same rut, even if we try to affirm that we're worthy, try to live in action of worthiness, which means in terms of actually being loving, allowing our presence to all of our experience, not only just the positive, joyful, creative aspects that I do believe we all have in us as individuals, though also the suffering, the sadness, the grief, the anger, the less savory emotions that, again, very few of us are equipped to actually embody. I'm so happy we're talking about affirmations because I think it's something that I see people struggling with time and time again, and they maybe put the post-it on their mirror and they say, I'm worthy, I'm worthy, I'm worthy. But when you start to learn about the subconscious mind versus the conscious mind, you realize you're just on the iceberg, you're above the ocean. And I'd love it if you could just run us through the difference maybe between that conscious mind and that subconscious mind and how really to be making biological, substantial rewiring changes. Do we need to be going into the subconscious? Like what is going on there? So everything right below that surface of consciousness, of awareness, the iceberg, as I think is the common kind of picture that many people have painted, that is everything that we've been talking about, this embodiment, these habits, these deeper lying states of nervous system dysregulation for a lot of us physiological imbalances that have been created from all of the habits that have not only been our own, though for many of us passed down through generations because we are impacted by those that came before us, not only what they're going to model and teach us based on what they learned and the resources that they have access to and their own embodied abilities to create change, we actually know that there's epigenetic changes or changes that are passed on that impact how our genes express themselves or don't express themselves that impact our ability to, you've guessed it, deal with stress. So if we come from overwhelmed past generations who didn't have resources, who suffered in whatever to whatever extent they did, then our own ability to tolerate stress and upsetting emotions are going to be impacted. And again, that's going to be wired into our subconscious mind. Though the brilliance of our human existence is not only do we have access to the conscious state, to the ability to affirm new thoughts, to imagine a future that's different, to hopefully over time as a result of my work and many others to empower ourselves to right, make those conscious choices, we actually do have the ability to begin to rewire ourselves at that subconscious level. We can actually change our brain. I'm sure listeners have heard of this concept of neuroplasticity. We can, though it's not going to come. I do believe that affirmations are part of the story. They can be very powerful, though it's also going to come not only becoming present to our subconscious habits by beginning to notice the ego stories that we began to talk about, the habitual patterns, the habitual ways we deal with our stress 
or other upsetting emotions. These are all ways that we can consciously begin to witness this deeper subconscious patterning. And then through making, so I will always break change, neural rewiring, if that's what we want to call it, down to two steps, becoming conscious of, I was just describing, and then simple as it sounds, making new choices, creating new habits, laying down some new neurobiological pathways. And they can happen and just tying all these concepts together and they are best benefited when they happen with small, daily, consistent changes. Not the tactic that many of us, as I understand, when we're in the throes of our suffering, when our life implodes or explodes and we just want to completely change from top to bottom starting tomorrow, unfortunately, it is the consistent new choices that are going to create those new neurobiological habits. So there's such benefit in taking the process slowly and creating change in small incremental ways. Because again, the more we move out of that familiar pattern by overhauling life from top to bottom starting tomorrow, if we're able to white knuckle it for a couple days, a couple weeks, which some of us can, before long, the resistance and the difficulty dealing with all of these new overwhelming emotions is too much. And then before you know it, we're right back in those old patterns. So I just like to describe again, the neurobiology for many of us who've tried to change, who can't create habits, who can't stick to them, who've tried to overhaul our life, and then we feel shameful and begin to think things like, oh, maybe I'm not meant to, when in reality, we have to understand how our wiring works. We're absolutely all capable of incredible change and transformation if we do so gradually and consistently over time. Oh, I love this. And I agree with the empowering aspect. Like everything can change. I had a history of the most toxic relationships ever, like so many of us. And stepping into this space of being in a healthy, calm, open, communicative relationship, I say all the time, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to run away or how many times I tried to fuck it up, like causing a fight at Thursday at 11 a.m. over literally nothing. And so I want to ask you, like putting this into practice, the people that have acknowledged their patterns, and they're used to the forest fire. Now, we call it the baby butterfly club at Open House, where like you should be going for the baby butterflies, not the forest fire. People go on these dates with this new awareness and they're used to the forest fire and they maybe don't feel butterflies or they feel these baby butterflies. And that makes them want to retreat, right? They're like, no, this isn't it. Like, I didn't feel anything. Are you saying that you should go on that second date? You should go on that third date with someone that maybe makes you feel a little something or even nothing because you need to get used to exploring new opportunities and building new pathways? What a great question. Because again, as counterintuitive and I'm sure very frustrating it is, I've lived this experience myself, we are so familiar and habituated right, to a certain way of being that the reality of it is if it isn't a safe and secure connection, when we're having the experience of a safe and secure connection, as very few of us, I think, had the safety and the security that we truly needed in childhood, it feels counterintuitive to us. It doesn't feel comfortable. It almost sends up pings or red flags or alerts or even just this idea that they're boring and there's nothing here. So as desperately as all I've wanted my whole life, not having that attuned caregiver in my childhood, the number one complaint that would end up the end of a relationship, me to find a more perfect person who I wouldn't feel this way with for me was I don't feel emotionally connected to you. I don't have that feeling. And the feelings that I was looking for were disconnection and stress-based chaos because that was what was present in my home. There was my family motto was always something, which meant always something to worry about. We had this 
bonded feeling. And that's how I began to define relationship. And if and when, you know, naturally the honeymoon period goes away, there's not a high level of stress, there's a calm experience, the first date where I don't have a wash with passion or whatever it is I've grown used to, we do begin to tell ourselves that, oh, well, maybe there's nothing here. Maybe this isn't the person for me, even though that which we desperately want and need, this calm, secure, grounded connection that can deepen over time is the thing that feels the most foreign and the most uncomfortable. So, you know, to say that, to say ultimately dropping in and being aware if you are someone that is looking for what you're calling passion, knowing that you came from a very high stressful or chaotic or inconsistent caregiving experience what you might be defining as even some of us say love, right? Oh my God, I'm falling so quickly might actually be based on that early, what I call trauma bond patterning as opposed to a calm grounded state. So what is baby butterflies? I love that, right? Tuning into small moments, maybe even tuning into like, what is it that, you know, kind of is coming up in terms of your values? Is this someone who you align with in that way? Can you even drop into, because this is something else I noticed that we do, We don't actually even drop in to discover if we're feeling butterflies. If we're not hit over the head by it, we're actually more concerned about whether or not this person across from me is showing interest in me. So the first question we can ask ourselves is, am I really in my own body? Am I feeling what it feels like to be connected and to be interested? Am I interested in the person across from me? Or am I just worried about, do they want a second date with me? Because I think that can cause a lot too of this hypervigilant feelings, what we think is stressful and love and alluring and right, maybe they're dismissive and they're distant and oh my God, that feels attractive because now I'm trying to make myself presentable and attractive to them and appealing. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot, but I'm not actually feeling from that more grounded, secure place. Oh, I'm so glad you like the Baby Butterfly Club. (laughs) It's so cute, isn't it? I'm like, we need to get hats and just wear them around so everyone can learn about this concept. But you're so right. When I met my current partner, I came off the date with this, oh, I think I'd like to see him again. Whereas before that, like it had always just been, oh my God, I have to see this person again. Like they have to pick me. Like they have to choose me. Are they going to text me? Oh my God, did I say something wrong? And I just came off this date with just this sense of calm and this sense of Oh, like curiosity. And then when he kissed me, it was just these little baby butterflies. And I was like, wow, this is foreign. And I'm so happy that I stuck with it. And I think one of the things that I am so enamored and obsessed by in your new book is that you do talk about concepts that people are not talking about out there. And I think that this heart-brain coherence piece is one of those. So When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
whilst we are on the topic of, you know, vagus nerve and heartbeat and like pounding biology, I'd love it if firstly, you could just start to tell me what is this concept of heart-brain coherence, and then we will get into how it's toxic or healthy and how you can use it to your advantage. Learning for me about the heart as a concept and then connecting with my own heart was quite literally life-changing. Again, back to this kind of model of the brain, the mind, all powerful, the most important organ in our body, more or less, is what I think most of us believe, though. As I came upon the science of the heart and the incredible power that lives in our heart, not only to send signals, electromagnetic energy outward, though to receive signals and electromagnetic energy from the environment around us. It actually reaches a greater distance they've been able to study than our brain waves entirely. More so, our heart actually plays an incredible role in terms of syncing our brain functioning and syncing all of the different functioning of all of the different organs in our body. And so for me, learning about that was half of the journey and of course, then becoming aware of how connected I am to my own heart, which my initial answer was, I'm not very connected at all because I'm not very connected to my body because I don't feel safe enough because I don't have the tools to deal with all of the overwhelming emotions, right? Like I was sharing earlier, though, as we begin to create the safety in our body to regulate the nervous system and to really attune to our heart and more so to begin to intentionally and consciously create or generate, which again was mind-blowing information for me, heart coherence. There's actually practices that we can do. And some of you might have heard of kind of heart consciousness, or I can name the Heart Math Institute. They do incredible work where there's a lot of different kind of meditation experiences, though, to put it simply, when we attune our attention, right? Not thinking about our thoughts, not worrying about today, tomorrow, or yesterday, right? We attune our attention to our heart. So we turn that focus of attention when we're meditating, when we're taking a quiet moment, some of us to help us do that, like to visualize maybe a bright light, a yellow light around our heart for those of us that are visual to really anchor that attention. And then when we call to mind something, an event, a loved one, something that can help us begin to feel what are called heart-based emotions, care, compassion, love, all of those emotions that we can generate then and begin to feel in our body we're actually able to then begin to develop what is called heart-brain coherence, which is a more rhythmic pattern in our heartbeat itself that then will, again, begin to synchronize and coordinate with our brain, will translate to our organs functioning optimally, our ability to even deal with more upsetting and stressful emotions. Another concept that I can mention here is HRV or heart rate variability because our heart rate is not actually equal between each beat. Naturally, there's a variability. And the greater the time between heartbeats, the more able our body is able to deal with stress and upsetting emotions. And so again, just to continue my own example, my HRV being disconnected from my body, not having the tools to deal with stress or other emotions, not having very much emotional resilience was very low to begin with. Though through these intentional practices, through consciously teaching my body how to deal with stress in the moment, through these heart consciousness practices, a quick one I just mentioned, I was been able to expand or to lengthen my HRV to get it greater. That's translated to me being able to not only deal with stress, more stress and more upsetting emotions. So it helped my whole physiological system fall into that heart brain coherence. 
Oh, I love this discussion and I've got my aura ring on right here. So yes, I'm like, yeah, yes. I'm, I'm there with my HRV. And I only actually found it like last week and I hadn't worn it for years. And I really was like, yeah, it's just time that I get back a little bit in tune with my body. And I know that you don't need tech to do that. Ultimately, we have all of the wisdom and everything we need inside of us. But sometimes it can be a helpful way to start to build that connection between us all. That's what I've found. And I love what you said around starting to love and feel from your heart because I historically have been more on the anxious attached side of the spectrum. My love language is words of affirmation. So like communication, head-based, talking, reassurance, affirmations, et cetera, et cetera. And my partner now, he's described as like having the Buddhist energy. He's just so calm, not like a big speaker. And I did a session with a psychic and I know some people are going to be rolling their eyes, but just stay with me because we're going to go back to original programming in about 20 seconds. And the psychic said to me, your partner is teaching you to love from your heart, not from your head, because he teaches you, you don't need to love with words. You don't need to love with control. I'd love to just ask you what your thoughts are on that. And if you feel like coming into your heart more means you don't have to always be thinking and talking. You can just learn to trust a little more. Thinking, talking, overanalyzing, sometimes because we think we're being super self-aware, finding or figuring our way through our problems is often a reflection of a stressed body, a body that doesn't feel safe, like your Buddhist partner, like you're describing, being in stillness. Because again, those messages being sent from the brain down and also from the body up, when there's tension in our muscles, when our heart rate is elevated, when we're not breathing calmly and deeply from our belly, it's only natural that our thoughts will begin to race, that we'll try to logic our way through our problem or to analyze what it is that's happening. That's almost a protection, a moving away, even focusing our attention and our thoughts in that way to solve the problem moves our energy and our attention away from the discomfort and the stress and the tension in our bodies. So to listen to our heart and just to continue to emphasize that, it really goes hand in hand with creating that physiological shift where safety and stillness becomes possible, where we can then tune into what I believe is where our intuition truly comes from, right? Our gut, our heart, that kind of core area and beginning to listen to those signals, which usually aren't in the form of the racing thoughts in our head or the figuring or the analyzing that we're trying to do. They're deeper sensations, you know, deeper gestures or pings or things that are coming from our body. And I do think a lot of times we find our way into relationships where things, and you're calling to mind even the beginning of my relationship with Lolly, where the way outwardly I was seeking to have love and community, like these gestures of connection and communication was a big mismatch. It actually would cause a lot of conflict between her and I. And so I think a lot of us do find our way into relationships that can challenge us in ways that can help grow us ultimately. And so it's beautiful to hear you're given a teacher, which on the surface, you're like, why aren't you affirming me in the way that I need? And in reality, he is affirming a deeper version of what you need in terms of your own reconnection with your heart space. And again, the case that I make throughout the book, How to Be Love You Seek, is our own actual creation of what I believe now love to be, an embodied action of everything we've been talking about, safety, security, self-love, the ability to be ourselves, and then the gift that we give others, the space and the safety and the security 
to be themselves alongside of us. Oh, yeah, without having to change them or put them on a pedestal or pushing them to go anywhere. I agree with that so much. You referenced the concept challenge you. They're there to challenge you. And I would love to just talk quickly about this piece around like shadow work and how this sits alongside the ego stories that are mentioned in the book and that we spoke about earlier. And I know that in the book, you also mentioned these repressed parts of the body and the repressed part of our experience can be referred to as shadow parts. And the reason that I ask this is that I finally now can see that my heartbreak from before this relationship, it hurt me so so much. It rocked me to my core. But what I realize now is that it wasn't actually even about him. It was about the shadows that he was shining a flashlight on. So I'd love it if I could just ask you your thoughts on that piece and to help to explain to others how the pain you are feeling sometimes is actually not even caused by the other person. Sometimes it's actually your own pain and shadow from within. So shadow is just really quickly and simply is all that is even more below the surface of entrenched in that subconscious iceberg that we were talking about earlier. It's all of the things that we were either directly or indirectly made to feel, again, concept we heard earlier, not worthy. And so that then we kept so beneath our conscious awareness. And just a little clarification here, um, what's in our shadow isn't just the bad stuff, right? The negative stuff, the pain, the shame. And I think the more traditional things that we typically associate with what is in our shadow, what's in some of our shadows can be actually positive attributes, aspects of our self-expression or our emotional experience that, again, didn't have that safe space in our childhood. So what ends up happening, and I can make a case that even just to answer the question of it's not about them, right, in terms of the shadow or these moments of suffering or what's being gifted to us in these moments of challenge. All of our emotions are actually ours and a remnant more of our own past experience and our relationship with our own emotions than actually a reflection or connected to the other person at all. So a lot of us, when we're in those really difficult moments in partnerships or in ending partnerships or even in friendships, when we're feeling that challenge or when we're revering, we're looking at someone else and wishing that we had this aspect of the personality that they had or this ability that we see in them, in reality, it exists within us. That's how we're even able to see it or experience it. So what we need to do, going back to this idea of ownership of our emotions, if you will, is to take the responsibility, right? And take that conscious awareness that there is something in me that is creating this emotional experience right now. And then more so, giving myself the opportunity not only to consciously see it, as we were talking about those two steps, though to feel it, to experience it, to be with our shame, our pain, our suffering, to be with all of these positive attributes that were never allowed to be expressed, which usually then wraps in some pain and grief because they never had space before, and to allow ourselves in and of its presence. And that's when we're going to be able to shift that experience or that tendency of always just saying, oh, well, you caused this by taking that responsibility. And we're also going to then give ourselves the opportunity to consciously navigate it differently. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a relationship to be avoided or a problematic issue. It just is information that if I understand that it's actually coming from me and my own history, my own pain, my own inability to be with all of that, 
Now, I might not have a different choice in how I navigate the current moment with whoever's behavior or lack of behavior activated it. Yeah, 100%. And I think that as part of this journey of how you can start to shift into being the love you seek, how to actively be that yourself, I think part of what we see feedback-wise is people saying, I don't relate with my family the same anymore. I can't be in a family with them anymore. I can't be friends with that person anymore. I need to leave my relationship. What advice would you have for the people that are doing this work, but finding it so difficult, feeling so lonely, feeling like the black sheep, that they almost feel like it's dampening the love that they can create for themselves because they've lost so much as part of the journey? I appreciate this question. I think it's a very natural thing that happens, even bringing back up the concept of resistance to change. Right. When we're trying to create change, as we discussed in all the different ways, it's hard. It's stressful. It's difficult. We're meeting all of these different aspects and sides of our new experience and we're challenged by it. So now imagining, right, we're in a system such as a family and we're on our own journey. We're empowering ourselves. We're doing differently. To some extent, we're feeling really good maybe about all the changes we've finally been able to create. And now because there's been a, a dynamic right? Expectations that have been met time and time again, even just resurrecting this concept of the conditioned selves. Maybe for the lifetime that we've experienced so far, we've always been the caretaker of that family, right? Always been the go-to, always been the overachiever or whatever role we've been. Now we've empowered ourselves to stop being that role and to not take that on. Now what happens? Quite literally like dominoes, there will be impact on those around us. I just like to, again, offer for the sake of compassion, because I think it's so natural to A, want those around us, especially those closest to us, like in a family, to celebrate our change, right? To see it, first and foremost, to celebrate it, to welcome it, to cheer us on. And then I think a quick thing that we ended up wanting to do is them to change too. We feel inspired. Maybe we've been struggling in relation with them. So we would like them to do things differently so that we can feel differently. And again, the reality of it is our change will challenge them. It will stress the system, right? It will bring up, we're going to stop playing that same dynamic role. So there will inevitably be an impact on them more. So as we've talked about, change is hard. It's a daily journey. It's all of this commitment to all of these embodied practices. So we can wish someone to change. We can give them the information for them to integrate into their own change and their own transformation. What we cannot do, though I think it's what we often try to do first, is make someone change. We can't will them to change, right? We can't give them an ultimatum, though some of us try to change. The reality of it is they have to create that commitment and build those practices into change themselves. And just to speak to the loneliness piece, a big inspiration for me to create the account, the holistic psychologist was twofold, was for me to have finally a space where I was able to share me. I had watered down myself in all my personal relationships. I'd been taught by a clinician not to be a person in the relationship. And I was seeing the impact that had on me. So it was really a space for me to begin to share my real perspectives, my real thoughts, my own journey. And because I was at a stage where I was beginning to set some boundaries, to make some changes, acknowledging that I can't request anyone around me to do different, though what I can do is change how I relate to everyone around me, my family included, which meant some really difficult moments and decisions and shifting again how I showed up in the dynamic. Assuming that they're going to continue to be the same, there were habits that I needed to and wanted to break within that family. And 
the same thing apply to friendships, some of which I thought I would have for a lifetime. I think this is another thing we do with relationships that have lasted a certain amount of time, especially if they're age old. We have this idea that, oh, we'll just have these people for life, even if we grow and change and they're no longer aligned. And in a lot of ways, I was deconstructing all of that conditioning and realizing how important alignment was, which simply meant I was having a lot more space from a lot of the relationships that I had carried for decades of my life. And I was starting to feel deeply lonely and deeply desiring of, much like on the Instagram account, I wanted more authentic relationships. So saying that to say, I think each of our journey is different in terms of what new boundaries we need. Of course, back to those two steps, becoming aware of the role we're playing in our relationships, not focusing on how someone could change so that we feel differently, really turning that focus. How can I experience this relationship differently, which for a lot of us means right, new physical boundaries, new energetic boundaries, being less emotionally available, taking less phone calls, whatever it is that we have to do to create more space so that when I show up, I'm authentically who I am. And the byproduct, again, is for a lot of us, we start to feel a bit lonely. We start to want to cultivate and create more authentic relationships. So I think then the suggestion would be the more aligned and authentic we are and continue to put ourselves out there, whether for me it was virtually, for others it could be in our communities, the more we are just expressing who it is that we are, the more we'll begin to attract those deeper authentic relationships that we want. Oh, I have nothing else to add to that. I'm like, there's nothing I could add. You have just condensed it all so perfectly, so succinctly and so powerfully. And it's the same for me. When I started this podcast, the first series, I live streamed my own therapy sessions because I was like, how can I show people that this is nothing to be ashamed of? And the second that I started doing that, I was like, I accepted myself for the first time ever. The world started to accept me. And not only did they start to accept me, but they started to like me and care for me and cherish me. And it's really scary to put yourself out there. But ultimately, it's so life-changing. I think that what everything we're talking about today comes back to is this relationship with ourself. We've spoken about the family. We've spoken about the friends. We've spoken about things falling away. And this year, I've had so many things fall away. And now I just have to let them go and I let it flow and I trust that it wasn't aligned. It's hard. It's really hard. But everything comes back to your relationship with you. And I think as we come into the final part of the episode, people are thinking, okay, yes, I need this commitment. I need this daily practice. I want to go on this embodied journey. Where do I start? And you talk about all things from Wim Hof to cold water therapy to EFT tapping, acupuncture, grounding. Can you just talk me through why people will benefit so much from doing these things? Is it because it helps them come back in their body? Is it because it regulates their nervous system? Why are these the techniques that you personally recommend? Yes, yes, and yes. It literally is to build, to cultivate a relationship, rebuild, reconnect with ourself. We have to have, again, as simple as a self that we're living in, a physical self, an emotional self. And for many of us, we have to begin to rebuild that connection. Um, the number one practice, again, just continuing to map it onto those two steps of change, that conscious awareness practice. There are so many of us that aren't living in that state of consciousness. We're driven by the autopilot, right? All of those neurobiological habits. We're not showing up as the intentional being day in and day out. Maybe you're like me, a million miles away in a spaceship, or you're endlessly distracted by 
your to-do list or you're always worried about someone else, right, in that caretaker mode. And the reality of it is you're not taking those grounded moments throughout the day to attune to what your body needs physically, how emotionally you're feeling, what you could do to help and support yourself, whether it's through self-soothing activities or through asking for support in terms of co-regulating, using someone else whose common ground is actually help your nervous system. And again, that first begins by discovering how conscious and intentional you're being in more moments than not. And again, the caveat here, because often I get asked, the goal, nor is it possible to be conscious every second of every day, though what is possible is to become aware when we're in that conscious state of intentionality and choice, or when we're dropped back in and just letting our habits drive the show. And the number one practice, I have a membership, Self Healer Circle now, which is crazy enough, is four years old. And every month we put out a new, what I call a course, a topic, content, workshops, everything that goes along with it. The first ever course that happened now four plus years ago was called Awaken Consciousness. And so every new member, while they have access to now, however many months it's been, of course, content, we will direct everyone who joins to that first course in those practices because it's foundational. I'll share what the practice is with you. It's just simply called a consciousness check-in, right? It's setting the intention for some of us, putting the post-it notes, maybe having a friend text you at a certain time of the day, maybe put an alarm on your phone, or maybe setting the intention around some activity, drinking coffee, brushing your teeth, something you do every day. And the commitment is, right, intention is half of the journey. I'm going to do this new thing. And then it's the embodiment practice, the choice of doing the new thing. And the simple practice is when that alarm goes off, when you walk by the post-it, right, when it's coffee time, you're going to notice first, where's your attention when you're doing this? Are you thinking about what you have to do next? Are you thinking about an argument that just happened? Are you like me, not thinking about much, a million miles away, somewhere drifting on my spaceship, though not here at all? Where is your attention? And without judging where it is, because remember, that's probably your habitual pattern of dealing with whatever it is that's happening in your body in that moment that doesn't feel safe and comfortable to attune to, then you're going to make that empowered choice to refocus your attention, right? Unhook it from your thoughts, from your worries, bring it back from the spaceship and attune, check in hook it right on your body in some way. You can use your breath, the fact that you're always breathing to begin to use that as the anchor for your attention. Other things you can do, use your senses. Uh, listeners might have heard of just scanning through and asking yourself, okay, what can I see? What can I touch? What can I taste right now? If anything, right? Really being in your body. A third one is just grounding your attention or anchoring it in the reality that you're assumingly standing somewhere, sitting somewhere, right? You're grounded on the earth in some way. You're being supported. So for me, I'm sitting in this chair right now. That would mean, oh, I'm, I'm my attention somewhere else. Let me turn my attention to how the chair feels underneath my legs, my thighs. If you're standing, right, you can just tune to how do my heels feel in my shoes. Even better, if you're barefoot on the earth, right, take your shoes off. How does it feel to be grounded here now? And that shift of attention, right, being now present in your physical body, the more you commit to that practice, the more now over time you can begin to attune to the different signals your body is sending you, the different needs your body might have. And then all of these somatic practices that you beautifully listed become really impactful, intentional breathing, right? Stressing our body through putting it in cold, turning the shower a bit cold or standing outside when it's cold out, right? Stressing our body and then calming our body down, uh, tapping. You can learn if 
there's stress or tension. There are certain tapping areas that you can access that will relieve that. If you like me notice, oh my God, I'm tense all the time. Now you can intentionally begin to stretch your muscles, gently releasing some of the stress and the tension in the body. And of course, the more consistently you practice these things, the more you're going to be shifting than the messages that your body is sending to your brain. Oh, and I just want to attest to everything that you are talking about here, which is that change is possible. Calm is possible. Sometimes people will listen to podcasts and be like, oh, well, she's an expert. So of course she knows how to do it. And I'm sat here as a total non-expert, just as a girl that has a podcast to tell you that I used to be the girl that flew off the handle, hot and fiery and feisty. And I was like, oh, I'm a Sagittarius. What a ridiculous justification <laughs> for being like a hot and feisty person. And something happened to me last week. And someone, again, I said, I'm losing people in my life. And my ex-boyfriend who reappeared, he then removed himself. And the old Louise would have been like, how can you do this? How can you come back and then leave again? Don't you see that you're just avoiding and you just shut down in the face of blah, blah, blah. And I just sat with it. And I just came into my body with that breathing that you spoke about. And I thought, oh, this feels really uncomfortable. What is going on here? And a week later, I haven't replied to the text message because I was able to sit with it thinking, do I need to reply to this? Do I need to teach him a lesson? It's not my job to do that. If he wants to go, that's okay. So anyone that's listening to this, that's like, no, I could never change this. I just want you to know, like, you can. I've done it. I'm in a calm relationship. I can't believe it. Life is consistent. Life is stable. Life is calm. And it's peaceful. And I think my final question for you is, what would you say is the biggest change you've seen in your personal relationships by doing this work? Or maybe it's in you, or maybe it's a relationship. Absolutely. Thank you for so beautifully sharing your journey with all of us, Luis. I want to emphasize that to beautifully make those shifts in that moment, right? To break that pattern of reactivity or teaching a lesson, which again, is the remnant of the old. Some of us get explosive. We get combative. We fight. I talk about the different nervous system responses in throughout the book. I call it eruptor mode, right? There was a protection there. I want to emphasize that it is the consistent daily practice, all the beautiful things you've been doing outside of those moments that allow that moment to happen. Because something I do see commonly, and it's very understandable, right? we want to hear this podcast, be like, oh, okay, the next time I'm going to yell someone or ream them or teach them a lesson or distract or dissociate, whatever version is your habitual pattern, I'll do this then. And again, the reality of it is that you're not going to set yourself up for success in that way. In that moment, you're going to be so locked and loaded in that habitual pattern, so overwhelmed by your emotions that you might not even remember to do it. And if you do, you're not going to have that safe and secure base to access like you so beautifully were able to. So I just wanted to acknowledge that piece in terms of the journey is those daily commitments in terms of the things that we do outside of the moments that we need it to make sure that we're able to access them in the moments that really, really need it critically. The first shift I think that is so foundational is I'm present in my relationship. I remember very early on with Lolly, she would have so many moments where, you know, excitedly wanting to connect with me to be present, to give me that emotional connection. And she would actually at times wave her hand in front of my face. I'm like, where are you? You're, you seem like a million miles away. And it is because I was a million miles away. I was living on my spaceship. I wasn't in that embodied state of presence. So for me, that has, of course, so many other byproducts of shifts and changes in my relationships. So it is all built on that foundation that 
now because again, to speak to that point of I'm committed every day starting in the morning where it fits into my schedule before I go about all of the things that I want to and can do throughout my day, staying committed to my body, to all of these different practices that we've been talking about, to making sure that I'm foundationally in that act of self-love and self-care so that when I do now show up in partnerships, in professional opportunities or whatever it might be, I'm actually more in that grounded state, that embodied state, that flow state. And that all began with staying committed to even that practice I shared earlier, that consciousness check-in. To this day, one of my practices I write in a journal. I have a practice that I developed and you can find it on my website, theholisticpsychologist.com. It's called future self journaling. It was my way. I'm not a typical journaler of journaling my thoughts and feelings. Probably not surprising to anyone hearing this at this point in the conversation because I was a million ways on my spaceship. <laughs> I didn't know where my feelings were. So well, that wasn't for me though. As I began to understand how important change and new choices were, I created a daily practice of setting an intention by writing it down in a journal, what it is that I was going to commit to throughout the course of that day, helping begin that rewiring process, writing it in the present tense as if I've already done it, and then setting myself up. Of course, it's not magic, but helping me get closer then to keeping that commitment. To this day, one of the lines in my future self-journal is how I am consciously, and I have added on, not just consciously my body, consciously connected to my heart. So when I emphasize how important that first step of consciousness is, I know so many of us want to dive into the tools and do all of the things to get there, be healed, or feel more connected sooner. That foundational practice of being in that conscious state of intentionality or choice throughout my day is still top of mind and a top practice. Because again, the dominoes that it's created in terms of my ability to be more present, not only to my physical needs, to my emotional needs, my ability to work through the vulnerability and resistance that, again, has been wired into me to sharing my emotional needs and asking for the support that I could benefit from in any given moment, and then more so allowing myself to be open to receive that support is all continuing to help me rewire that deepest belief that I'm not someone who's worthy of it, that I'm a burden, and this is continuing the commitment that I keep at each and every day because I by no means am on the other side of done. I've not checked the final box of healed. Again, these patterns run deep. There's still many moments where I find myself going back, shifting into dissociation, acting as if I'm not worthy, rejecting the support and the love that's around me, not being the love that I seek or that I want to be in the world. Though what has changed is I'm consciously present and I'm able to, just as quickly as I notice myself doing the things that aren't of benefit to me, give myself the opportunity in the next moment to begin to re-engage these life-changing choices. Oh, thank you for sharing. That's really powerful and really beautiful. And I think my very final question before I ask you to share when people can get the book, where people can get the book is, you know, you speak about this concept of the spaceship. That was you. You were off on the spaceship, disassociated, disconnected. Some people might be like, oh no, that's not me. That's not me. What kept coming to me was that some people go to a spaceship and some people go to their mobile phone. Do you think that is the other equivalent of going to the spaceship and that people really might be self-sabotaging their own embodied journey by constantly being in this device? There's so many things that we can do to distance or distract ourselves. We all have endless opportunity now with social media and information, even sometimes things that we think we're researching for our own benefit, I think can be a mode of distraction for us. I think sometimes even activities right? 
over-exercising, over-committing, trying to be everything to everyone and right, saying yes to anything that is asked of you, all of those very habitual obsessive behaviors or compulsive behaviors are for a lot of us a way to deal with not dealing with what's actually coming up. And yes, so with the advent of social media and endless information, again, I never will be one. It's quite literally changed my life in so many ways, the opportunity to create the community and connect with people and be my authentic self. And now even write books, I will never be one to just wash it as something that's bad. What we can do is learn how to be an intentional and conscious consumer of the endless amount of information that is present. And not to shame and judge ourselves if in the moments we are scrolling, as I still will do on very frequent occasion, or numbing right to hours of mindless television. If they do get asked a lot, like, was the goal to avoid that entirely? You must never check out Nicole or scroll or numb out to television. And the answer is, oh, I absolutely still do. What is different, though, is that's not the only way that I can cope with what's going on. And I'm aware of when I'm doing it, which gives me the opportunity to stop doing it at any given time. And I still have the tools to deal with what I might be avoiding in that moment. Oh, powerful. Thank you so much. I think we could all be a little more aware of our social media consumption. Now, please tell me, when is the book available? Where is the book available? And how can people join your self-healer circle if they wanted to? The book is publishing on November 28th. It should be available anywhere you like to purchase books. Most book retailers, major book retailers will have it. I do have a website up, howtobetheloveyouseek.com, that highlights some retailers. So again, I welcome you to type into the search bar wherever it is you like to purchase books, and hopefully it'll be there. I urge you also to follow alongside of checking out my website, theholisticpsychologist.com, for that future self-journal if you're interested in it. I actually am releasing in just a couple weeks a relationship edition, so you can jump on my mailing list on that website and get the current future self journal that I still use to this day and also the updated relationship edition in a couple weeks. You can also get information about Self Healer Circle, my live virtual global community that I was just sharing about. And I welcome you to also visit all of the social media presence that we now have pretty much across every social media platform. There is some version of the holistic psychologist available I'm shouting that out to really be sensitive. It is such a priority for me and my team to continue to have these conversations, to get these resources out there and to continue to be a part and foster and grow the incredible community. Um, for me, it's where my healing began and it will always remain a priority. So if for whatever reason we don't have access to the financial means to buy the book, to be in the circle, no problem at all. I am committed to continuing to talk about all of these conversations, these topics, and to continue to share as much free resources as I can. And like I said, the communities across all of these platforms are so beautiful, so growing, so vulnerable. There's so much healing that so many people get just by reading the comments and feeling a little less alone in that way. So come follow whatever social media platform you prefer to scroll on and spend your time. <laughs> come join us wherever it is. Yeah, and I can attest to your self-healer circle because when I tagged you in an Instagram story yesterday saying like, oh, I'm recording tomorrow with Nicole, I like looked up and I was like, oh, 
I've already messaged her before. And then it was when you'd opened the doors for one of your circles or the wait list like three years ago. And I was freaking out. I was like, I signed up, but I didn't get the email. Oh my God, how am I in? <laughs> you or whoever was on the account was like, don't worry, you're going to get the email. And I look back and I was like, that is so cute. I was freaking out so badly to get into this circle. And like, I made it and I can attest that it's really powerful, really vulnerable and just incredible. So Thank you for that, but also just for everything you do. The, the trillions of people that consume you and your content and yeah, the movement. You are pioneering a movement and so many people have been positively impacted by that. So thank you so much. I've had a sneak peek of the book to anyone listening. You got to get it. You got to get it. It's incredible. It touches on so many things that I just don't think are being talked about. So from the bottom of my heart, <laughs> perfect way to end from the bottom <laughs> of my heart thank you so much I can feel your truth I can feel the power in your authenticity and I am just so excited for the rest of the world to get their hands on this thank you for all those supportive words thank you for your support along the way I'm truly have been honored to be here Louise thank you for what you do so opening up your journey as raw and as vulnerable as you have been, the gift that you are giving your community and ultimately the collective is so very great. So I'm so inspired by people like yourself who are living their truth in this more public way. So thank you. And of course, thank everyone for listening, for taking the time to be present to these conversations and hopefully as a result to be more present to yourself. The impact again is so great for all of us. Oh, thank you. You gave me goosebumps, which is... I got them too. We had yeah. them together. <laughs> I'm like, truth bumps, bump. But yeah, exactly. Put your phone down now, everyone. Like, put it down. <laughs> go and be present. Put your hand on your chest. Feel into your heart. You've had your social media consumption for the day, and we are both so honored that you chose it to be us. So thank you, Dr. Nicole. Thank you to everyone listening, and we will speak to you very soon. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Cilias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.